Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello, welcome to the Five Rules of Writing, brought to you by Strong Words magazine. I'm Ed Needham. Now, this is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true about writing whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether that's Indian love poetry or a pinch of nom, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. And today I'd like to welcome a great and prolific crime novelist, indeed a real contender for the nation's top crime writer, according to one leading national newspaper. He's published 17 novels featuring his go-to detective, Tom Thorne, and a number of standalone crime novels besides. It's the outstandingly dark Mark Billingham. Welcome, Mark. Morning. I'm not feeling particularly outstandingly dark today. I feel quite chirpy. Okay. Now, what, now you are considered fairly close to the top of the pyramid of the uh, of crime writers, if not at the very top. But where do you place yourself on the on the crime writing spectrum? If we put the sort of uh, slightly doddery rural investigators at one end and the absolute, uh, you know, sort of pit of despair berserkers at the other, where, where do you lie on that spectrum? I'm slightly closer to the to the pit of despair, I think. Um, not quite not quite at the edge of it. Um, certainly not cosy. Um, I have no problem with cosy crime fiction. You know, I think it's sort of like, you know, it's it's like you're in 1977 and you have to be a, a punk or a or a prog rocker, you know. And, and and I think most people are somewhere between the two. Um, uh, I, crime, cozy crime fiction isn't my thing to read, therefore it's not my thing to write. But also, I can't read anything that's irredeemably bleak. Um, I need I need there to be some humour somewhere uh, somewhere in there. Um, yeah, I, I I think it's very tricky to write about murder, which is what most of us are doing without without being dark. It's not something you can treat flippantly, you know. Quite now, where do you, when did you decide you were going to be a crime writer, Mark? Um, well, I suppose I started, uh, I, I put it off. I mean, I, I've always read crime fiction sort of voraciously and I've always written one thing or another, you know, terrible poetry and rubbish plays and then, you know, stuff for the stand-up I was doing and bits for TV. But the only thing I thought I could never, ever take on was a novel because, because they just seemed so daunting. You know, you'd pick them up and they'd be like house bricks. And it's like, this must be so much more work than a half-hour sitcom or a few jokes. Um, but I was reading crime fiction. I was hanging around on the on the fringes of the crime fiction community, going to festivals, reviewing books, all that. Um, and it wasn't until sort of around 99, 2000 that I sat down to try and write one, just on, on holiday with the family, you know, sitting scribbling in a notebook every night outside this villa in Corfu with a, with a beer. And by the end of it, I went, blimey, I've done about 30,000 words, hang on that's like a third of a novel. Maybe it's not as daunting as I, as I think it is. And yeah, so that was it from then on. So it's less daunting than your holiday then, which uh, <laughs> you didn't yeah, certainly enjoy less very daunting, much. Yeah, less daunting than any kind of holiday now, that's for sure. <laughs> and, and who most inspired you or did, did you most sort of wish to emulate? Who Was there a particular writer or genre? Um, well, I was I was a huge fan of, I mean, after after discovering sort of Sherlock Holmes at school and stuff, I, I, I then discovered all the American hardball writers. So as I, I was a huge fan of Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Ross MacDonald and 
um, and carried on reading American writers and still read the great American writers, you know, the likes of James Lee Burke and uh, George Pelicanos and Laura Lippmann and Dennis Lehane. And I still read all those people. I read, I read kind of, I, I still read the people who are raising the bar, I think. Do you, you read know. newcomers at all or do you, or do you are you slightly resentful of uh, now that you're, you know, because this is a very, this is a, this is a very competitive area of writing, isn't it? Crime. Yes. Yes, it is. You know, hundreds of people pouring in each year, obviously thousands more trying to get in. Do you, uh, how do you feel about newcomers? Well, I mean, it is, funnily enough, I've just, I've just read and, and, and given a quote to an amazing debut novel, amazing debut novel. I mean, yeah. When you read one, you do sort of go, how can you be that good that quick? (laughs) Um, yeah, you feel a little twinge of you. Feel a little. There's a there's a sense of these, the, the, as you say, hundreds of new writers galloping up behind you. Um, but you know, you've just got to to write the best book you can, and still have a sense that there are people you read that make you think, "I'll never write a sentence that good." You know, it doesn't matter how many books you've written. Um, I still want to read the people who, as I say, I think of raising the bar and giving you something to shoot at. You know. Can you tell me who that newcomer is that you're? Uh, yes, it's a, a writer called Robbie Morrison, whose whose new book is called Edge of the Grave. It's coming out um, uh, next year. It's a, a historical novel set in the uh, uh, just after the war in Glasgow, and it's just amazing. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Let's get onto your five rules, then, Mark. What's your What's your first one? Oh, you may have to remind me of what okay. my rules are because uh, I, I foolishly don't have them in front of me. No problem. Okay, so you you told me your first rule is to don't cheat the reader. Yes. Now, it's funny because uh, probably the biggest book, the biggest crime novel all year has been this book called The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman, which has been absolutely huge. And very kindly in in the acknowledgements of that book, Richard thanks me for giving him two rules, two all-important rules of crime fiction. And this just happened over a, over a sort of a boozy lunch about two years ago when, when because I've known him for a while and we sat down and he told me he was writing a crime novel. And this was the number one rule that I, I gave him back then. Because it's easy to cheat the reader. I just sort of think you can make, you know, but you mustn't make life easy for yourself in that way. There are various ways of cheating the reader, which I'll probably go on to in sort of subsequent rules, I think. But you just shouldn't cheat because at the end of the day, you're only cheating yourself. What do you mean exactly by cheating the reader? Well, I mean one of the way, one of the ways to do it, for example, I, I believe that you should always keep your killer in cl- in plain sight. It's terribly easy to have a detective on the trail of a vicious murderer who's, you know, I don't know what he's doing. He's murdering people whenever the moon is full or some nonsense. Uh, but you know, he has no idea who this killer is, and nobody does, and they, they they follow these clues, and it gets them nowhere. And then in the subsequent chapter, the killer just sort of leaps out of a closet and goes, it's me. Well, that's easy. Anybody can do that. What is hard is to keep your killer in plain sight all the way through the book. And it might be that, you know, mild-mannered janitor. It might be the the first witness that was interviewed. It might be a a policeman. It might be anybody. But that's the job. That's the challenge, is to have that killer there all the time so that when the killer is unmasked, the reader goes, oh, of course, of course it's him or her. You know, that. I mean, that really is what you're trying to do all the way through. Mm-hmm. And do you see this very often when you're reading other people's work? Do you find yourself throwing books against the wall? In- uh, yes, yes, now and again, now and again, uh, whenever whenever somebody cheats. The other way of cheating, and I think this is probably leaping onto another one of my rules, um, is... You've already done that. Huh? You've already done that with keeping your killer in plain sight. Oh, OK. Well, well I mean, the other, the, the, other way of, the other way of cheating is to have, for example, your detective knowing things that the reader doesn't know. But but not letting the reader know, you know, your your omniscient narrator keeping that from the reader, 
Um, I mean, it's fine. I've done this myself, whereby perhaps in a really crucial chapter at the end of it, it you know, I might say, you know, and Tom Thorne knew exactly who he was looking for. And that's just a tease. That's a little, you know, so the reader goes, oh, but then they want that very quickly revealed. Mm -hmm. You know, you wouldn't say that early on and then hold on to that information for another 300 pages. That's just cheating. It's just, it's sort of easy and, and and it's wrong and it makes me very, very cross. It makes, it's the things that make me cross as a reader that actually inform these rules, I think. I think all you can try and do ever is to sort of write the, the sort of book you'd like to read. And I know that when I'm reading books that that cheat, I get very angry indeed. There was quite a there was a good book came out um, uh, uh, last year, uh, which is sort of a novel of a novel of detective novels, where it, it basically distills all the you know possible formats. I think it's called Eight Detectives or something like that. Oh yes, and yep. um, and so it's so, so basically you've got uh, you know you've got your suspects, your detectives, your crime, and there's one other component, but something very basic. And but basically, really, it should all be there in the first chapter. Essentially, is all there. So if I want to solve a classic Billingham uh, novel, by what point in the story will I have all the information I need? Oh, I mean, probably by the halfway point. But I mean, I'm not. Um... I'm not setting crossword puzzles. I'm not. I'm not that kind of a, of a writer. And um. And and I think I've learned enough over the years. I've spoken to enough coppers over the years to know that actually, if you're trying to be uh, realistic, um, or at least have a you know a degree of verisimilitude in in the books, crimes are not solved by a detective. You know, you know, seeing seeing something that apparently insignificant, and this huge light bulb moment goes off and go. Now I know who you know. Now I know who the killer is. They're sold by CCTV cameras and and mobile phone cell site technology and and forensics and coincidence and people being stupid and doing all that sort of stuff. Now, as crime writers, we have to find ways to dance around that. Um, you know, and there's only so many times your detective can reach for his phone and find that it's out of battery. Uh, there's only so many times there's no footage in the CCTV camera at a crucial moment. So you have to find elegant ways to, to deal with that stuff. But um, I, I, the other thing to say, of course, is that not all the crimes and murders are solved. Um, and I'm a big believer in that, not leaving the reader at the end of the book going, what? <laughs> There's no, nothing's been resolved here. There is always a degree of resolution, but there is always, as well, a, a kind of grey area. Um, I like to think of it as the taste I want to leave in the reader's mouth. That's very important to me. How I want the reader to sort of feel when they close that book. I don't want them to feel disappointed and cheated. But I do want them to feel, oh, you know, maybe there's something else. Maybe there's, you know, there is not every loose end is tied up. I think that's important. Okay. Now we've already strayed a little bit into your second uh, rule, which is to always have your killer in plain sight. Yeah. How is it uh, that you manage to keep your killers in plain sight when your killers tend to be often they're extremely violent or twisted or calculating, vengeful individuals? They're, They're quite as personalities. They're they're quite sort of outlying. Well, I, I, I think to be fair, over the over the course of the series, those killers are sort of in the minority. Actually, they're certainly the killers I start. They're, they're certainly the books I started writing when I was when I was almost marketed as a horror writer very early on for the first two or three books. Uh, yes, I, there were probably what, there was one too many serial killers knocking about, and I've and I've I've grown to become slightly tired of that. Um, just because you know what, there aren't that many serial killers running about. There really aren't, and you start to to stretch the bounds of credibility if you're always writing about somebody who you know 
has some obscure patterned motive for killing and whatever it might be. Um, There's a fantastic um, point that somebody made recently about um, Joe Nesbo and Harry Hole and said that uh, in, in Norway, in the history of Norway, there's only ever been one serial killer and Harry Hole has already caught six of them. Well, I mean, it's it's a difficult problem because uh, you take a writer like like Joe Nesbo, whose uh, whose early books I think are fantastic. Actually, fantastic. I think the Red Dress is a is a terrific book. Um, Devil Stars, terrific book. But clearly, the books that broke him through were those kind of ultra violent books, books like The Snowman and so on. And it's very difficult when you when you start selling a a shed load of books and your publisher wants to continue selling a shed load of books and all that sort of stuff to to pull away from that. To to I remember when I when I'd written those first three books which did contain serial killers. And I remember very deliberately changing that and going, I'm, I'm not going to write about that now, and writing the fourth book, which was something very different. And I remember the first review, the first review I got for that book went, what a shame that Billingham has changed a winning formula. And I remember being quite cross because thinking, well, it was a formula. That's the point. You have to change it. Otherwise, you become, by definition, formulaic. So, you know, it's, it's like anything else. If you go and see your favourite band, you know, you, the last thing you want to hear is here's some stuff from our new album. You know, you do kind of want to hear those hits. And crime writers who, who are writers of popular fiction do need to tick certain boxes. And are you better at spotting the killer in other people's books uh, than um, the average reader, do you think? I, th- I think I possibly am. There are times when I, th- when I go, oh, I, I can see what you're doing here. Often I'm wrong. I mean, often I'm completely wrong. And I love that because I would not want that pleasure taken away. I would not want the fact that I do this for a living to, to, to mean I can't enjoy reading crime fiction. So, yeah, I absolutely love, love being surprised. But sometimes mm-hmm. I can see the, the technique at work. And do you have a favourite instance of being misdirected by someone else? Is there an absolute classic? Well, I mean, when I read, when I, I mean, the first time I read Gone Girl, when I read, the well, first time I read Gone Girl, where halfway through that book, you turn the page and you do go, holy crap. I mean, that, you know, what, if, what of course something like that does is then spawn a whole series of books that are very, very similar, not just because they have the word girl in the title, but because they use that same kind of, twist the best sort of twist i think is one that that doesn't again doesn't come from nowhere you you almost you're almost responsible for it yourself you almost do you know what i mean you kind of go why did i think that back then why did that writer make me think that because it's the fact that they've made me think that that has led to this whole you know um the twist in i let you go claire mcintosh's first novel again is absolutely extraordinary um when you come to it uh, but of course what then happens is these books get marketed as having these twists. So you spend the entire book looking for them. Yes. Which can kind of take away the pleasure. Yes, and, and I certainly agree with you about formulaic and, you know, there's a lot of crime writing becomes very cliche, doesn't it? Or or just, and, and which takes it into the realms of the completely implausible. Yes. Mad, the number of people who lose their memory in, uh, in crime novels. I, I don't think I know anybody who's, who's lost their memory other than through... Um, uh, dementia, you know, or old age, you know, somebody who's just kind of gone through the, some sort of lapsus uh, and come out of it again. I don't, I don't know anybody or of anybody. It, it happens in every other crime novel, it seems. Yes, I mean, there are a, there are a number. I mean, it's tricky sometimes because it's, you know, there's a thin line between a cliche and an archetype, and and as I say, there are boxes sometimes you have to tick. Um, you know, I'm sure, and I know because I've met them that there are plenty of detectives who do not have particular quirky tastes in music, do not drink or take drugs, are not haunted by past cases, go home to very happy families, thank you very much, 
But readers would tend to say they don't want to read about those detectives. So writers like me don't tend to write about them. You know, the extremely happy detective. I'm sure there's one or two knocking about. Um, but the problem is it's those boxes you have to tick. I, and I've said this before. It, you could write about a, a you could write a Western in which your cowboy didn't have uh, a hat or a gun or a horse, but he's probably not a cowboy. So, and that kind of takes us on to our third point, our third rule of right, rule of crime writing, which is remember that the key to creating suspense is character. How does that work? Yeah, yeah. Now, this was this was a big revelation to me, and I can I can remember the the writer I was reading at the time. I was re I was reading a writer I've already mentioned called George Pelicanos, a very a favourite writer of mine. Um, and now George would George would happily call himself a mystery writer. You know, he doesn't mind what you call him. But he, he, he I was reading a book of his where I think I was two hundred pages in. And nothing bad had happened. You know, nothing bad had happened. But you know it's going to. You know, you know the kind of book you're reading. Um, and you know that there is going to be violence coming. Perhaps just one act of violence, transformative act of violence. But by the time I was halfway through this book, I was caring about these characters so much that I was turning the pages in, you know, so nervously going, no, please don't let anything bad happen to this character or that character. And, and he had me, you know. I had suspense from page one because the characterization was so great. And I think that's the key. You know, I've given all sorts of workshops over the years about how you create suspense. And you talk about all these weapons in a crime writer's armory. This stuff we have, you know, the reveal, the moment when you reveal the key piece of information and, you, you know, your use of timing and the twist and the cliffhanger and all this stuff. And don't get me wrong, you know, great day at the office when you come up with something like that. But if you give the reader characters that they can engage with and care about, uh, then you've got suspense from page one, and that's really all that matters. Um, and and I think that's something I've I've been trying to do. Certainly, certainly, is to is to write about victims of crime like they matter. You know, like they're not just plot devices or mm -hmm. or catalysts for something to happen or something just to bring a detective onto the scene. That the victims of the crime the, and and the relatives of the victims of the crime and so on um, are important. And I know this is a this is a very sort of complex process, but what 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 is the key to making a character? Not, I don't know, it's not really plausible on the page, is it? But, but to making them of interest to a reader that you want to turn the page and know more about them. Well, I'm a big believer in, in uh, something that um, Elmore Leonard, Elmore Leonard, of course, has written uh, a wonderful book about writing, which I'm looking at right now, Elmore Leonard's 10 Rules of Writing, which, which every writer should read. But one of the things he's very hot on is not, not doing the reader's job for them. Um, and that that's... You know, that that, that, that applies to, to very prosaic things, like is there any reason to describe everything a character is wearing? Do you really need to know what colour their shirt is? Or, do you know what I mean? Um, but also not interfering with the way they speak. So it's not, you know, always just use the word said. Just attribute a line of dialogue with the word said. That's all you need to do. Everything else is in the reader's imagination because that's what the writer's job is certainly in, in, in crime fiction, is we're just nudging a reader into the shadows. We're just going, you know, there is no act of violence that I could describe on a page that could match the act of violence you can imagine. There is, you know, uh, which, which is why I'm fed up reading about it. You know, again, something I've said before, but a single spot of blood on a, on a pristine kitchen floor is a far more powerful image than blood gouting up the wall and messages written in intestines or whatever it might be so do, you know let the reader do the do the heavy lifting and i think that applies to character as well just put your character on the page and let them speak 
You don't you don't really need endless pages of backstory and exposition and stuff that explains who this person is and what they think about every little thing and what their tastes are in every area. Let the reader do that because then the reader has an ownership of that character. Um, and, and that's that's important for me. Excellent. OK, so we're coming on to number four. And number four is a little uh, slightly cryptic in your description of it. Don't be a chubby checker. <laughs> don't be a chubby checker, by which I mean don't twist and twist again. Uh, I think, I think he, you know, even a big chunky crime novel just needs one great twist. You know, and I think of those those brilliant sort of Roald Dahl short stories that, that became the basis for Tales of the Unexpected, where there's one killer twist, which is all a short story, you know, has, has room for. But quite often, I think it's all a novel should have as well. There are a number of writers who I've stopped reading because the twist has become their thing. It's become their gimmick, their stock in trade. So there'll be a big twist on page 100 and then another one on page 200 and another one. And you stop caring. You know, oh, my God, oh, my God, John's dead. No, of course he's not dead. It's only page 100. <laughs> you know, he's going to come back to life. It's a magic trick. He's a double. He's a twin, you know. And and I, some of these writers are enormously popular, and I'm not knocking what they do. Um, because thinking, thinking of good twist is quite hard. But I just think you don't need more than one. You know, you don't need a big bag full of them. Who do you feel is the greatest offender at the moment? Of, of oh, I, I, oh I, I, I don't want to name any names, Ed. I, I, that, that feels a little bit harsh. Um, because, as I say, these writers are enormously popular. They are enormously popular. They go, we will fool you. We will twist and then we will do another twist and it'll be like a roller coaster ride. And I think that's what some readers love. And that is absolutely fine, because who, who are any of us to tell people what they should enjoy? But right. for me, it's just a technique. It is just technique. I mean, it's certainly something the um, the publishing industry is very enthusiastic about, isn't it? You know, over-promising on the twists is <laughs> classic blurb, um, you know, cover blurb stuff. And yes, and of course, as I said before, all that does then is make the reader look for the twists. So they're, they're kind of ignoring things like the great characterization and the wonderful landscapes or whatever it might be, and just going, what's the twist? Everything that's said, they go, oh, is this a twist coming? Mm -hmm. They're looking for it all the time. And how do you make sure that your your regulation single twist is of an acceptable standard? What uh, what is what, what's the twist? It's have? one of those things you kind of know. It's one of the things you sort of know. And actually, they the best twists work because you you think you know how a reader thinks. Because you can't be a crime writer without being a crime reader. I mean, it sounds really obvious, but the number of times I meet writers and I go, oh, you know, who do you read? And they go, oh, I don't read. And you go, this is going to be a dog of a book. Um, because you, you, when you're writing something, there's this invisible reader looking over your shoulder and you go, I know what they're going to think. If I say that, I know what they're going to think. And that's the sort of the setup, if you like, for the punchline of the twist. I mean, one of the simplest ones is one of my really early books where um, I describe a couple getting off a train and they're walking hand in hand along the platform and you follow them home. And then on the doorstep, the woman is killed. And you realise that she's hand in hand with her child and not with her, her husband or boyfriend or lover. But I knew some, just something about the wording made me think, oh, 100%, there's no way a reader is going to think that's a child. It's just a, because of the assumption they're going to make. And so the, that, the, I know that that was a twist at the, at the end of that chapter. Lots of people went, <gasps> but I, I didn't do anything. Right. I was just playing with the reader's expectations, I think. And that's one of the ways to make a good twist work, I think. Brilliant. And number five, your fifth rule. You say don't use victims as plot devices. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've already uh, alluded to this, I think. I got very sick of, you know, when, when the great serial killer novels 
came out, and I'm talking about, you know, Silence of the Lambs, Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, which are wonderful, wonderful books, but they did spawn a whole slew of inferior <laughs> imitations where uh, it would almost be like the writer would not know what to do next, so would just throw another body in. You know, the, the equivalent of Raymond Chandler's thing of, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next, I'll just have somebody come through the door with a gun and something will happen. What, what these writers would do is just throw another body at it. There would always be some character going, he will kill again when the moon is full. He will, there's always another body and another body. And you, you don't care about these victims at all. They're just victim 12, victim 14, victim whatever. They are just plot devices. Um, and I got very sick of that, these books where it's a dance of death between a cop and a killer who are on a, on a sort of collision course. And that's all that matters, not the victims. And so certainly when I sat down, I, I had been the victim of a violent crime uh, not very long before I sat down to write my first book. And when I wrote it, I damn well wanted the victim to be front and centre. And I wanted it to be about fear and, you know, how you cope with that and and grief and loss. And But I mean, how can you write about that stuff and not make the victims the most important characters? Um, so, yeah, I, w- I won't read a book where... If I'm halfway through, I suddenly realise that there's been 12 bodies and I can't remember any of the victims' names. It's, it's extraordinary, though, isn't it, just how easily the reader is able to sort of pass over, um, you know, the fact that something, something awful has happened to a person and you don't actually consider that they are a person at all. Like you say they're just a name or a, something to help the plot go along. And there's something that I saw on television recently that reminded me of this, which is a fantastic uh, Belgian uh, uh, sort of uh, drama, uh, trial drama called uh, The Twelve, and um, it's very dark. It's very not so much dark. It's very depressing, very grey and rainy, and um, it's about the jury. And it and for the first time, I think ever, uh, it shows that the jury are all have their actual lives going on at the time while they're sitting in this trial, and some of the things that are happening to, happening, happening to them. Are quite dramatic whereas we just get so used to seeing juries as almost 12 cardboard cutouts people who sit there and, and nod occasionally or maybe maybe scribble something down that you don't actually get to see but you just think well they're just people they'll make a decision and they've got no interiority or life going on at all and and having seen that makes you realize just how often in crime fiction you get these people wandering through who have some quite significant role in the development of the story but absolutely no personality or no then no dimension no dimensionality at all so no and that and that's at its worst when those characters are victims you know and and you you can't just pay lip service to it by going well let's have one little scene where we see this victim you know with with their parents or with a friend and just see what vibrant lovely people they are and the next time you see them they're on a slab and you know your your quirky pathologist is is cutting them open the detective's going i'm going to get this bastard and that's it and that's as far as you go about ever knowing anything about that person um or caring i mean you hope of course that most people who are who are sensitive human beings will care kind of just naturally but i but i think you have to you have to constantly be there's a there's a i wish i could remember the name of the book it's a wonderful writer called steve mosby who wrote a book a couple of years ago at the end of which he did this very clever lovely thing of there being a sort of memorial service almost like the last thing in the book was a memorial service where somebody stands up and they read out the names of all the people who had died. And it's the first time I'd seen something like that done. So the very, the thing you took away from the book 
was these were, were these people were the lives of these people the lives that no longer existed lives these people no longer had um you know it wasn't some cocky detective going you know it was this and you know yes i'm sure it was a it was a rather downbeat ending but it was a lovely ending and in terms of plot and in trying to assemble all the um various pieces of information for the benefit of the reader where do you stand on crazy walls oh well walls well yeah. I'm, I'm looking at what i should imagine my crazy walls should say and and all it does is say uh, get dressed by cheese write novel um those are the only things it says i thought it would be this wonderful thing with you know colored post-it notes and whatever i mean the only other thing i've got is this notebook this notebook which literally just says book 22 um and just has a few things scribbled in it because i thought i would be a planner because i'm quite an anal kind of person um you know I do like things to be very well organized but actually when it comes to a book I can't do it I can't it feels like homework if everything is written down and you know there are some wonderful writers who do exactly that Jeff Deaver who's a brilliant writer will probably will spend 10 months of the year planning a book almost paragraph by paragraph uh before he writes it I can't do that um there are, and that means of course I run into an awful lot of dead ends and I have to stop and step away and go, what have you done, you idiot? But then two days later, I'll be in the shower and go, oh, I know what to do next. I just find that a bit more fun than planning everything out. Tremendous. And what's next for you, Mark? Um, well, the, the book that's coming out in July is a standalone book. Um, I don't think I'm allowed to say the title yet because there's going to be a bit. Oh, no, yes, I can because it's all it's up. It's called Rabbit Hole. The book that's coming out in July is called Rabbit Hole, which is a standalone. And I guess I'm about halfway through the next Tom Thorne book, which will be out god willing in 2022 fabulous thank you so much for talking to five rules of writing mark and best of luck thanks for having me take care from strong words magazine these are the five rules of writing 